This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Tech Talk, brought to you by Cellcom Business. BFM 89.9, the business station. My name is Rich Bradbury, and this is Matt Splained. Last week was a, a fun episode. Things got a little bit silly. Uh, we even managed to end on an upbeat note, which means we must be in store um, for a double dose of misery and doom today. Matt, um, are we talking about like stuff like policy initiatives and curbing big tech today? Hey, Rich, I know everyone's still in kind of holiday mode, so I'm going to take a beat before I come back to all the uh, hardcore stuff. So I thought we'd just go with some more good news tech and science stories today. No Frankenfoods, no algae rhythmic artificial intelligence or <laughs> robots made from your own RNA. Um, are you a, a fan of kombucha? You see, I want to be. I've tried it. I know how good it is supposedly for me. I can't get along with it. Okay, I know people have these kind of mixed reactions to it, and I don't really do fermented things either. They, I know they're supposed to be good for you, but they just make me feel awful. Yeah, um, yes. it, yeah. you know, I, I'm I'm okay with the stuff in principle. I I know it's another one of those things that the kind of sneering set likes to write off as being a hipster fad mm, but mm. you know unless you find or or you're afraid of finding some artisanal beard in your bottle you know give it a chance but honestly you know the folks who don't give a scooby about kombucha i think they're really kind of missing the point because it is all about the scooby well scoby it's about the symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast oh that that was smooth well done exactly um i've been working on that for a week uh (laughs) no it's a bit like the uh, the starter that fuels sourdough uh, and i'm not going to hear a word said against sourdough it is the king of breads it's also the king of pizzas Mm -hmm. but um it turns out according to a story that i found on wired that uh, SCOBY, uh, kombucha, may hold the key for an environmentally friendly approach to water filtration. And instead Ooh. of that sourdough starter, it all starts with the kombucha SCOBY. Sorry, SCOBY. I've got that on the brain now. Uh, so what is it? Uh, a jelly or a gel? What? Well, pretty much. A SCOBY is a uh, a biofilm it's a gel-like collection of cellulose fiber to quote Mm. wired now early research by institutes like mit and imperial college london has demonstrated that it's possible to breed a stable lab-grown scoby that can detect pollutants in water and help to break them down so different strains of the scoby detect and break down different pollutants Mm -hmm. Researchers at the Michigan Technology University have used the breakthroughs at these institutes, MIT, Imperial College, to create water filters that are a little bit more environmentally sound. This is compared to uh, the commercial uh, polymer-based water filters, uh, you know, most of us use. Yeah, I mean, all filters can quickly become clogged by the contaminants that they filter out. But this also allows bacteria to grow on the filters themselves. And that bacteria can be difficult to remove, or it might require a lot of chemical cleaning. 
And mm-hmm. that's where the kombucha and the scobies come in because they can be used as filters which inhibit rather than promote that bacterial growth. So it mm. seems that kombucha oxidizes common carbon sources like sucrose, glucose, and ethanol into acetic acid, which has these known microbial properties. In tests, the biofilm filters, known as LFMs, living filtration membranes, became clogged a lot more slowly than commercial polymer filters. But crucially, fewer potentially harmful microorganisms were found in those clogged LFMs, raising the possibility of creating them as commercial filtration units. So that's pretty good going for something that a lot of people have just written off as a hipster fad. Hmm. Yeah. Um, Any more bacterial wonders for us today? Well, I take it you don't mean the secrets that I share with my doctor. Um, No, 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 no. 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 Um, Yeah, this one is about (laughs) phages. Uh, Thousands of uh, people are either killed or made sick by uh, food-inhabiting bacteria like Listeria, E. coli, Salmonella, Shigella. Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't know why. They all have names like 1960s pop groups. Um, (laughs) But, you know, a lot of these bacteria are really hard to kill. And some of them can live on in your fridge or freezer. Uh, Some can resist high temperatures. And they're evolving to resist both disinfectants and antibiotics. So they're becoming a lot harder to both protect against and to cure. Mm. So there are some existing treatments like ionizing radiation that have been found to be effective, but those treatments actually alter the taste and the texture of the food once you irradiate. Mm. You mentioned phages. Presumably you mean uh, bacteriophages. Yeah, so for people who aren't familiar, bacteriophages are bacteria-killing viruses. And before anyone gets upset about the idea of lab-grown viruses, uh, according to New Scientist, where I found this report, there are thought to be more bacteriophages on Earth than every other kind of bacterial entity combined. So if you want to know what that is as a number, it's in the quintillions. That's 10 to the power of 31, to be precise. And again, to give you context and to reassure you that reassure you that scientists aren't engineering some kind of plague. There are estimated to be around 10 quadrillion bacteria bacteriophages, that's a 10 with 15 zeros, just in the human gut. And they do their best to keep our systems balanced and healthy. And before the widespread use of antibiotics, phages were used to combat infections. They fell out of general use and a lot of research because you often have to find a specific strain of the phage that will combat Mm. an infection. Whereas with things like broad-spectrum antibiotics, it covers everything in one go. And how are these phages being used to kill bacteria on food? You simply spray them on. Uh, You use a a cocktail of phages that target the strains of the bacteria that you want to eradicate. Uh, They're already being used in a lot of countries, uh, especially the US and Australia, and they don't count as an additive or a pesticide because they're naturally occurring. What Mm -hmm. complicates their use is that different strains of different bacteria are prevalent in different countries. So the cocktail has to be tweaked for every country that it's used in especially as those bacteria are constantly evolving. 
So the phages have to be monitored. Mm -hmm. And the formulation of the cocktail tweaked so that it remains effective. So this isn't a product like, you know, Clorox or Dettol, a one-size-fits-all, kills 99.9% of harmful bacteria type spray. Mm -hmm. And according to Wired, where I read this story, this is actually a problem for regulators because regulators are used to dealing with these single formulation chemicals. They're mm -hmm. not used to dealing with an ever-evolving disinfectant. So their approvals and their assessment protocols aren't actually set up for it. Question, um, does it affect uh, the shelf life of the product? Well, yeah, uh, in many cases, it actually extends it because it's also killing the bacteria that cause the the, the fruit or veg to, to degrade, to start to rot. But it mm. isn't a perfect story. The stuff is only going to be effective if the food is effectively sprayed. I mean, that's kind of obvious. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't normally eradicate 100% of the harmful bacteria. So if the item isn't stored properly or if you store it for too long, those colonies of harmful bacteria may start to grow back. And are we looking at these phages for uh, human benefits as well? Well, yeah. I mean, we've talked about the search for the gut, uh, gut bacteria that could cause or combat conditions like obesity or depression. The US is rocketing ahead with research in this area. It's known as nutraceuticals. Uh, Belgium and the little country of Georgia are also pioneers in the fields of phage-based treatments and therapies. So rather than go into a lot of detail here, I think nutraceuticals is a topic we'll devote more time to on a future show. Awesome. I think I remember reading something about Georgia a while ago, so I'm, I'm interested to explore that a bit more. Um, so uh, more medical or bacterial marvels for us today? Well, and bear with me on this. Uh, recently, I was watching a video of two people trying to play guitar while receiving electric shocks from a device that's supposed to relieve the uh, pain of childbirth. And what? it was, yeah. And it was <laughs> that's completely, very specific. Yeah, it's very specific. It's completely hilarious. I'll put the links in the uh, show notes for the off-brand subscribers. But the <laughs> electricity, uh, but electricity and electrical fields, um, as I mentioned in the, the, the pregnancy pain, relief example, they do have therapeutic uses. Mm -hmm. For example, electric fields applied across a wound can actually speed up its healing. And presumably that requires some kind of, you know, large field generating equipment. Yeah. So it's been very impractical to, to use on kind of a large scale. So scientists uh -huh. at the University of Electronic Science and Technology of China in Chengdu wanted to create an electrostatic dressing that could be used like a regular dressing, but using those electrostatic properties to help the body heal. And what they created is a four-layer dressing. Uh, again, this is from uh, New Scientist. The dressing measures just uh, 0.2 of a millimeter thick, so it's wow. very, very thin. It consists of a layer of electrically charged plastic, that creates an electric field through uh, static contact with the skin. There's mm -hmm. then a, a layer of flexible silicon gel, and this allows the, uh, the dressing to, to form to follow the contours of the skin. And then there's a layer that pulls those edges of the open skin together so that it's pulling the wound together as it's healing. Yeah. And that's then covered with another layer of the uh, silicon gel. The product has yet to move into human trials, but lab tests have shown that the uh, charge dressing 
is much more effective than traditional ones. On circular wounds, the skin was 96.8% closed using the charged product uh, and less than 80% closed with a variety of traditional dressings after about eight days. The team is working on dressings that can work on a variety of different wound shapes and sizes, and they hope to move into human trials soon. That's fascinating. Do we have any idea of what this might cost? Well, of course, you know, outside of being used in hospitals, dressings need to be cheap, obviously, because, mm. you know, we, we need to be able to afford to use them. So going back to those bacterial stories, this isn't just about uh, getting patients up and about faster. It's about getting those wounds closed so that mm -hmm. the kind of treatment-resistant superbugs that have emerged in hospitals around the world can't then infect the patient. But right. the team in Chengdu is confident that the cost of the product will be low enough for it to be widely adopted. Uh, let me just check my watch. Uh, I think we've got time for uh, a little one just before the break. Okay, I've got another medical one, but I'll save that one for after the break because I think it'll take a bit longer than we have. Uh, have you joined the Wordle revolution? I have indeed, yes. And have you enjoyed uh, it so far? It, well, yes. Um, I, and no, frustrating uh, at, at times. But, you know, when you do get it on your second or third try, the joy is kind of amazing. Yeah, I, I don't think I've managed a two yet. I'm averaging the, the three at the moment. So I, that's, uh -huh. that's what I'm aiming for. But in case, you know, you've been asleep, Wordle is a, a simple word puzzle game that's just kind of appeared out of nowhere and taken the world by storm. Yeah. Uh, you have to guess the five-letter word. You get six attempts. Each time you guess, it tells you if any of the letters are correct and whether or not they're in the right position. But mm. the key to the game is that you only get one puzzle per day. So it rations how often you can play it. And I think that's part of what's been fueling this obsession. Mm -hmm. uh, there are also a, a slew of uh, clones and imitators. There's Absurdle, uh, which I really love because it uses a, a neural net, so it's AI-based, to change the words and make it harder to guess. So every time you guess a word, it decides that uh, you're on the wrong track. So it just takes you down this really long path. There's uh, Swerdle, which is obviously a, a version with swearing. Uh, Wordle 2, which is exactly the same, but uses six-letter words instead of five. That's Ooh. a lot of fun as well. And I believe there's even a Bahasa Malaysia version, uh, Katapat, as well. Uh, are you telling us all of this because uh, why? Why? Well, because you might want to play it, but um, no, because the, the game was originally invented by a chap called Josh Wardle. Uh, he invented it for his wife, who likes word games. Uh, I also appreciate the matsplained leveled wordplay on his own name, Wardle, mm -hmm. Wordle. Uh, mm -hmm. um, so it's completely self-funded. So I was worried that as the game becomes more popular, that Wardle might not be able to or be willing to foot the escalating traffic costs of maintaining it because we forget mm. that when we go to websites, the person who puts the website up is actually paying for that traffic. So if it goes mm -hmm. beyond what you've uh, budgeted with your provider, you have to start paying and that can go up really, really massively, really quickly. Yeah. So it was announced earlier this week that it had been sold to the New York Times uh, for the uh, low six or seven figures. I can't remember which. 
uh, which, in addition to its venerated crosswords, the New York Times, has a slew of word games and puzzles, but they're all behind a paywall on its site. Apparently, the uh, New York Times has pledged to keep the game free for the time being, but I do imagine that it's either going to use it as a lure or eventually it will be absorbed into the paper's uh, paid-for tier of services. So mm -hmm. I guess the good news is that it isn't going anywhere, that uh, its success is not going to mean it has to be taken away. But the bad news is you might eventually end up paying for it. You know what I do love about Wordle? It's like we've made a collective decision not to give away the answer. Yes, that's really interesting. And people do get chastised for doing it. A friend of mine, yes. uh, a friend of mine did it inadvertently yesterday and somebody else posted a, well, I got it in one in a very sarcastic <laughs> way. Anyway, when we come back, a Star Trek like visor enabling the blind to see. You tuned into Matt Splained here on BFM 89.9. Stay tuned to Tech Talk, brought to you by Cellcom Business. Bias Free Media, BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Tech Talk, brought to you by Cellcom Business. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. My name is Rich Bradbury. Welcome back to Matt Splained. Matt, you can't tease Star Trek and then go into a break. Hey, I'm helping you to sell advertising, right? Um, <laughs> no, I mean, while we're on the subject of Star Trek, uh, Deep Space Nine is just getting better and better. I think I'm at the end of season two now, so I think I'm up to like 1994. That's how with it I am. Uh, <laughs> I, I actually wish I'd spent uh, more of the 1990s watching TV instead of wasting my time going to clubs and bars and concerts and meeting uh -huh. people. Uh, those of you who remember uh, Star Trek, The Next Generation, which ran about the same time as DS9, will yeah. remember the character Geordie LaForge, the chief engineer of the Enterprise, who was uh, played by the actor LeVar Burton. Mm -hmm. The character was blind from birth, but he used this spectral array visor and implants that allowed him to see. So, you know, he had this weird visory thing across his face. Yep. The idea was that the visor scanned the electromagnetic spectrum and transferred the spectral images straight into his optic nerves. So the character didn't see in a traditional sense. It was more like the way uh, a radio telescope sees the universe. I, I, I'm just curious, is this heading somewhere? Because what you're talking about is something that's set in the future in a fictional universe, or, or does it have you know real-world applications somewhere? I, I kind of live in a future fictional universe, but anyway, um, no, I mean, it's always momentous when someone creates something Star Trek-like, whether it's deliberate or accidental. And yeah, I guess so, yeah. Yeah, and researchers at the Technical University of Munich have created a set of 3D printed infrared goggles that helps people with sight impairments to see and negotiate the surroundings. And they look really like LeVar Burton's Pfizer. Now, no I, I, yeah, I don't know if anyone remembers a story that we covered about a decade ago and 
yes, we've been doing this stuff for that long. Uh, mm. It used cameras that were linked to a kind of lollipop. So you put this lollipop in your mouth and it would transmit a kind of sensory map to the user's tongue to allow them to, to see, in a sense, what was in front of them. That's not exactly user-friendly, though, is it? No, I mean, it was a great advance technologically, but maybe not practical in terms of the user experience. But time is its own great innovator and the technology marches on. So this story in New Scientist really caught my attention as I'd never forgotten about that seeing eye lollipop story. Uh, the German development uses a pair of infrared cameras that create a stereoscopic image. Computer processors then turn those stereo images into a map of the surroundings. That mm -hmm. image, in turn, is then turned into a low-res image, which is then translated into a 5 by 5 grid, so 25 dots. And mm -hmm. the grid corresponds to 25 vibrating sensors that the user is wearing as an armband. And how does that translate into visual information for the user? Well, it's very basic. So if you're walking along a pavement, say, the pads vibrate more strongly along the edges to tell you that, you know, the, the, the width of the road and the things in front of you. If there's an uh -huh. obstacle in front of you, uh, some of the uh, dots will vibrate to show you where and how far in front of you that obstacle is and how close you're getting to it so that you can negotiate around it. Mm -hmm. Or if you're in a very kind of narrow space, then more than one row of the pads on each side would vibrate to show you that you're in a much more enclosed uh, location. There have only been basic tests so far because, you know, this is just a prototype. So they've only done it with five volunteers. But mm. the system was easy enough that the volunteers completed the test route the first time they used it. Oh, so wow. there are still a lot of challenges and tweaks to, to make the armband more user-friendly, for example. As New Scientist points out, um, it's got to be large enough that each of the pads is easily distinguishable from another, but it's got to be you know compact enough that you can wear it comfortably. Yeah, exactly. It's got to be wearable, otherwise this is going to be a complete failure. Yeah, and you know one of the potential advantages that this system has is rooted in that usability. Some visual aids require a lot of expensive equipment, or they might be kind of robot-based. Others mm -hmm. interpret visual clues audibly, so you're wearing headphones, which, just like the lollipop, is actually detracting. It's taking a sense away from the wearer. The lollipop right. makes it harder to talk. The audio devices prevent you from hearing what's around you. So mm -hmm. this device is different because it doesn't detract from your other senses. It's only adding inputs. So I do hope we'll be able to follow up on this story and report on a more kind of market-ready solution in the, the near future. Um, interestingly, we're uh, around 20-something minutes into the show, and you haven't mentioned AI. Um, how are you going to keep this one light and uh, positive? Well, not all of the AI stories are uh, a negative. I mean, most of them are negative, <laughs> but not all of them are. Um, we've been talking more recently about hybrid working methods, uh, letting yeah. AI do the kind of boring and repetitive stuff, or you know, it can do all of the, the, the grunt work ruling out all the various combinations in models, and humans then get to work on those kind of shortlisted or completed tasks. 
research chemists at uh, Canada's University of Toronto have uh, gone a stage further. They've come up with a more targeted way to create these hybrid human AI teams that make the best use and the strengths of each, the, the machine and the person. Uh, chemistry labs are already highly automated. Um, a lot of labs are, are self-driving, so they mm. feature robots doing the the actual distilling and mixing and, you know, all the chemistry stuff. And the results that they produce are then analyzed by AI, which flags the, the most promising avenues for the human chemists to uh, follow up on and explore. So it saves the chemists a huge number of hours in terms of both completing the experiment and comparing that data. Sounds pretty efficient, but, you know, how, how do you make something like that more efficient? Well, part of it is actually in identifying the parts of those processes uh, that could be changed. So it might be handled by the robot, but it would be better done by a human or vice versa. Right. So the yeah. Canadian team has devised a system they call Root Score. Uh, algorithms analyze every possible combination uh, that uh, you could take to create a target molecule. So that hmm. would be, you know, the, the number of hours by a human or a robot, the cost of those hours, the wear and tear costs, the cost of the raw materials, even variables like how much of the equipment will need cleaning, how long that will take, what that will cost. In tests, the system is able to accurately predict the correct cost-benefit analysis of producing all of the molecules they tested, something like 3,000 in all. So I assume the hope is that uh, this will make labs more flexible as well as uh, increasing the uh, efficiency. Yeah, and I mean, this is another story I found in uh, New Scientist, but when we talk about automation, the thing with it is it's habit-forming. We tend to use the machines because we're used to using the machines. Mm -hmm. We've bought into that idea that they're labor-saving. But we don't necessarily think about whether they're the most optimal solution. And because root score is dynamic, it responds to the fluctuating costs of materials, equipment, and labor. So it can give the chemists a more accurate indication of which parts of the process should be automated and which should be human-driven on a given day. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, as machines get better, we will see more and more of those processes routinely being the domain of the machines. But as we edge towards that future, tools like this, and not just in chemistry, can help us to figure out the best balance between man and machine as we move forward. All right. Um, I think we can squeeze one more in, Matt. Uh, uh, maybe one of your more off-the-wall discoveries? Well, I've saved the best till last today. This is a, a story I found on Wired. Um, <laughs> everyone likes blowing bubbles, right? I mean, we pretend it's for kids, but really? Mate, if somebody's blowing bubbles, I'm going to be walking through that thing and spinning like a, a Disney princess. <laughs> That's an image I'm not going to let go of in a hurry. Um, <laughs> no, but, you know, there's always that one bubble as well that you catch or it lands on you and it doesn't pop. So you yeah. stay, yeah, you stay as still as possible because you want to see how long it will last. And there's always someone who's destined not to be your friend or your partner for very long who thinks it's funny to just pop it. They'll see you holding yes. it for like 30 seconds and then they'll go, ha ha. Um, you know, I, I may only be speaking for myself here, but you know, you, you get that sense of sadness when it pops. I don't know if you get yeah. the sadness because you're yeah, spinning yeah, yeah, yeah. like a princess, but, um, <laughs> you know, you have that feeling that 
that that one bubble could have been the one that lasts forever. Wait, is is this a story about an everlasting bubble? I know you can already see it as a Pixar movie, right? Um, yes. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, this is this is actually something that mathematicians and physicists are concerned with. Uh, in 2018, researchers at uh, NYU calculated the best way to blow a bubble, and it's a lot more complex than we think. Um, yes, there's the SOAP formula, but the mm -hmm. size of the wand and, of course, the speed and volume of the air also affect how you blow that bubble. In uh, 2020, Justin Burton at uh, Emory University in Atlanta published a paper on giant bubbles, and he achieved that by adding polymers to the, the mix. So he was able to, uh, to make really, really huge bubbles. And the polymers essentially knitted together. So it allowed the bubbles to stretch without breaking. So we've got perfect bubbles, we've got giant bubbles, but they all suffer from the same problem. Gravity pulls the liquid in the soap formula down, and at mm. the same time that liquid is evaporating, so your bubble shrinks and it pops, of course, usually within a few seconds. Has someone invented bubble wrap? I I'm giving all the best gags away today. Um, <laughs> Back in uh, 2017, uh, physicists in France discovered that they could create bubbles consisting of plastic microspheres that could store pressurized gas, and they called these things gas marbles. Uh, researchers at the University of Lille, obviously in France as well, decided to see how long they could make bubbles last. Mm. Uh, obviously, uh, when they did tests, uh, the soap formula bubbles, they only lasted a minute or so. But when they used water-based gas marbles, they could push that to between six minutes and, incredibly, an hour. An hour? But then you, what happens if you, you've got your bubble like in your hand and, yeah, you're that annoying person who might have tried to burst your bubble earlier on? Oh, this, this is interesting. Carry on, carry on. All right. Well, because evaporation is uh, still an issue, they added glycerol. So glycerol mm -hmm. has the advantage of creating strong hydrogen bonds with water, but also it absorbs water from the air. So it offsets a lot of that evaporation effect. Obviously, different combinations of water and glycerol created a different effect. Uh, do you want to take a guess at how long the bubbles lasted? I mean, bearing in mind, we're looking at a best time of about an hour with the water-based gas bubbles. Oh, um, I don't know. Uh, five, six hours? Well, depending on the mix they used, it ranged from six days. What? I mean, that's huge, an hour to six days, to an incredible 465 days. An hour, no. a, a, a year and a quarter, I guess that is, uh, or a third, a year and a third, sorry. <laughs> that shows my maths isn't good enough for this. Um, <laughs> I imagine, though, that that's the kind of bubble that most parents are going to grow tired of. Uh, 465 days is a long time to have a bubble. Uh, a lot of hamsters have failed to live as long as that. But it's not just about the bubbles. The Lille team has also used the solution to create other shapes as well. Mm. Uh, a 3D pyramid structure they created has lasted for over 380 days. Uh, and at the time of broadcast, it was still going strong. So that's it. That's my goal for 2022, to fill my house with everlasting bubbles. That's incredible. Thanks for that, Matt. That, you really did save the best for last then. 
I, d- I did, yes. I, uh, yes. I don't want to uh, uh, blow my own bubble, but yeah. Oh, I'm going to burst it now. Anyway, yeah, uh, you can find Matt on Instagram and Twitter at CultureMatt. Uh, and you can also head over to CulturePop.com for transcripts of these shows and information about CulturePop and its consulting services. This, of course, was Matt Splained here on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Tech Talk was brought to you by Cellcom Business. Get serious about cybersecurity and secure your business's digital future at business.cellcom.com.my. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.